Well, I want to welcome you here today. My name is Paul Muma. I'm the lead pastor at Genesis, and uh, thanks for uh, being a part of, of this service today, especially as we start this Shattered series. And I just want to ask you as we get started, you know, maybe you've got a mirror at home, uh, whether it be in your room or in the bathroom or something, whether it's a full length or a wall mirror. Uh, when you look in the mirror, what do you see? You know, I know when I look in the mirror, there are some things that I see that I hope that you see. I mean, I, when I look in the mirror, I, I see, well, I've been running quite a bit regularly. And, uh, you know, I, you know, for 36 years old, I, I feel pretty good. I, you know, I want you to see maybe that I'm, I'm wearing my favorite jeans today, you know, and that they, they look all right. And maybe they're kind of trendy and maybe they make me look 25, I hope. Um, you know, there are things when I look in the mirror that I see that, you know, I, I want you to see those things. But there are things when I look in the mirror I see and I don't want you to see. I, I don't want you to see maybe a, a blemish on my face. I, I don't want you to see that I decided not to shave uh, this morning. I don't want you to see that when I look in the mirror, I see a lot of gray hair and they just seem to be coming more and more. I don't want you to see that I went to the fair yesterday and ate a lot of fair food. And, uh, and because of it, you know, I had to tighten that belt a little bit tighter today. And can we just say that deep fried Oreos? Wow. I don't know if you've ever had a deep fried Oreo or not. I mean, we have bagels here, but can you imagine what we could do with like deep fried treats, you know, on a Sunday morning, you know? So, so there are things that I look at and I see that I want you to see. And there's some things that I don't want you to see. But if I look deeper into the mirror, you know, there are some things that I see that I hope you see. You know, I want you to see that I love my wife. You know, I want you to see that I, I love my children. I'm trying really hard to be a great dad. I, I want you to see that, you know, I'm doing everything I can to become a better communicator and teacher. And, you know, as a pastor, you know, I want you to see these things. But I have to tell you, too, that when I look in the mirror, there are some things that I see that I don't want you to see. I, I don't want you to see my mistakes. I, I don't want you to see that. You know, I can struggle with temptation. Um, I, I don't want you to see that I don't always do the best job as a husband or the best job as a, as a dad. I, I don't want you to see that sometimes it's really, really difficult being a pastor. I don't want you to see these things, but these things make up who I am. I mean, they're a part of me, but just because they're a part of me doesn't mean that I still won't try and hide them. How about you? What do you see when you look in the mirror? You know, there are some things that you see that you want me to see. I mean, you want me to see that you've lost 20 pounds or you want me to see that you're wearing that new outfit today or you want me to see that you're real in love and life right now or, you know, what this church has done for you or what Jesus has done for you. I mean, you want me to see those things, but, but if you're honest, I'm sure that when you look in the mirror, there are some things that you see that you don't want me to see. You don't want others to see. You don't want me to see your past sin or you want me to see the things that you struggle with or your mistakes you don't want me to see your insecurity. And so we hide. That's what we do, right? I mean, that's our reputation. We all hide. We like to hide. And we're all pretty good at hiding. We're, we're pretty good at coming home and putting on a brave face in front of our family, our friends. I, we're really good at putting on that brave face when we come together every Sunday. You know, when we get around each other at work. Uh, you know, unfortunately, there's so much hiding. There's all this pretending, and we all do it. I mean, we all want to hide the hurt. We all want to hide the brokenness. We want to hide the shame and the guilt that we feel or that we've experienced. We want to hide from our past mistakes. I mean, like it or not, and we'll just call it brokenness. I mean, your brokenness, it defines you. I mean, it has an impact on you. It has an impact on how you interact with others, and it's, it's a part of us. 
but it's a significant part of us that we prefer to hide. And, and while most of us work really hard to put our very best in front of others, you know, we also work to cover up those areas of our life where we do fall short. You know, we'd rather project this image that we've all got it together, even though we don't. And why do we do it? Again, it's just the word brokenness. You know, we're all broken. And we're all broken because we live in a broken world. I, I like the way that Lewis Smeads said it. Lewis Smeads once said, he said, you know, in a broken world, there are only two states of being, brokenness and illusion. We either admit that we're broken or we're lying, he says. Now, where does it come from? Well, if you go all the way back, if you go back to the very beginning of time, the Bible, the scriptures teach us that God made us. Uh, he made man and he made woman in his image, in his perfect image. And God made man and woman and he put them in this place, the Garden of Eden, this, this beautiful garden, this perfect, you know, beautiful garden where, you know, they had the permission to run free, to roam free. And it was a place that they could be everything that God had created them to be. You know, there's a Hebrew word uh, to teach you a Hebrew word this morning, a Hebrew word that describes, it tries to get at the point of what it was really like there in the beginning. It's the Hebrew word shalom. All right, just say it with me. Shalom. All right. I mean, the word shalom, it means peace, but it's more than peace as in the absence of conflict or the lack of violence, but it's peace in this sense of wholeness. It's peace in this sense of completeness. I mean, it, that's the way that it was in the very beginning that God made Adam and Eve. He put them in this place called the Garden of Eden and, and there was shalom. You know, there was peace. And life was perfect and good. And the Bible says that God gave man and woman dominion over all things. He gave them dominion over the land. And he gave them dominion over all of the creatures, you know, of the land. You know, their work had meaning and value. God said they could go wherever they wanted, whenever they wanted. They could do whatever they wanted in anything. And, and they could eat anything they want. You know, God says you can have everything except... There, there's one tree that I'm putting in the garden. I just think it's so important to be reminded that, remember, he gave them everything first, but said that there is one tree and one fruit where I'm not going to allow you to eat. Well, you know how the story goes. I mean, you've heard the story. You've read the story before. And you know it, too, because you've lived it. I mean, I've lived it. I mean, we've all lived it. The story of Adam and Eve, it's your story and it's my story. I mean, we've all chosen our own way. We've all come up against these places where we've rejected the will of God, you know, in our lives. It's almost as if we were convinced that God was holding out on us, you know, that, that we knew better. I mean, God was saying, don't do this or don't go down that forbidden path. But we were absolutely sure that what we were looking for, what we really needed was down that forbidden path. And so just like Adam and Eve, we were tempted and we went for it. And like Adam and Eve, you know, we took the bite and all of a sudden, well, here's what happened to our image. I mean, this perfect image that Adam and Eve once shared in the Garden of Eden. I mean, it, it went from perfect to, to shattered. I mean, and everything changed. And, and the same rippling effects in, in your life and in my life. I mean, we, we, we had this perfect image. And, but everything changes with sin. I mean, everything is shattered. You know, before, again, you know, Adam and Eve, when they looked in the mirror, they could see this perfect image. You know, they could see, you know, God in them and what God was doing for them. But now everything is broken. You know, before, you know, these relationships or even our relationships came across as perfect, but now they're broken. And now work lacks the significance that we all crave. It's broken. And there's little peace in the world. There's more violence and pain than anything else. It's broken. I mean, get honest with yourself. And you see that everyone is shattered. We all feel it and we all face it because of this 
brokenness. Now, it's important that you and I understand some implications of our brokenness and how we've arrived at this place. That, that sin leads to brokenness means two things to you and me. These aren't in your notes, but if you want to write them down, you can. The, this, the fact that sin leads to brokenness means two things. First, and I just think it's so important to hear this, and I know it may be difficult to hear this, but it means that some of your brokenness, some of what has become in your life is your fault. It's my fault. I mean, when I look in the mirror and what I see, I mean, this shattered image, I mean, some of it is your fault and it's, it's my fault. I mean, we've made mistakes, we've made choices, we've taken actions that, that add to this brokenness. I mean, some people, though, are good at saying, you know, I'm the victim. I mean, I'm always the victim. But it's important that we know and realize that we've got to own our part in this. But the second thing is this, that all of your brokenness is not your fault. Completely. I mean, it comes from the stuff that happens to you. It, it comes from the stuff that people have said to you, and it comes from the effects of simply living in a broken world. Now, brokenness finds its starting point at the very beginning. We alluded to that just a moment ago. Um, to a degree, Adam and Eve represented uh, us all when they made that first decision to go against the will of God in the Garden of Eden. And right after that happened, Scripture tells us that people started behaving in strange ways. You know, Adam and Eve started reacting in different ways. They started hiding I mean, Adam and Eve started hiding from God. I mean, before they sinned against God, the Bible says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, that Adam and Eve were naked and they were unashamed. But what, watch what happens after sin in Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. It says, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. Now, again, before sin, the Bible says that they were not only naked and unashamed, but they were naked and unaware. All right, they didn't know they had any reason, you know, to be ashamed. I mean, that's how perfect things were. Again, it's the word shalom. So the verse continues. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. I mean, the very first underwear. Here it is right here in the Bible. I mean, you didn't know it was there. I mean, we've got fig leaves and let the hiding begin. I mean, the hiding begins before they were unashamed and unaware, but now they are very aware. They are very aware of their shortcomings. They are very aware of their mistake, the ultimate mistake, but of their following mistakes. Verse 8, it says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now that phrase, cool of the day, is an interesting one and maybe even a little misleading. I was reading this past week. You know, some say and some even translate that that statement, cool of the day, can also be translated as coming as a storm. You know, that, that God comes in the cool of the day, but he's coming as a storm and he's coming, you know, with judgment. And so it says, And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden, Verse 9, but the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And verse 10 says, he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. So they're hiding from God, which is pretty ridiculous when you think about it, right? I mean, we, we all do that. We all play that game. And just like with us, I mean, here with Adam and Eve, they're hiding from God. And God asks this question. It's a significant question. He says, where are you? Now, now let's be clear. Um, it's not as if God can't find them. You know, or that God's tired of looking, that he's ready to wrap up this game. You know, let's move on with something else. But, but this question, it has some significance because with the words, where are you? I really think what he intended to do was to get Adam thinking, you know, basically, Adam, do you realize what you've done? I mean, do you have, do you have any idea how everything has changed? And, and this new life that you've brought upon yourself. I mean, you've gone from unashamed to hiding. You've gone from shalom to brokenness and chaos. I mean, do you realize, Adam, 
and Eve what you've done. Now here, again, this is why this is relevant, because you may be looking at this from the outside thinking, you know, why are we talking about something that maybe even never happened in your opinion? Well, there's relevance here. I mean, the story of Adam and Eve hiding in the garden, it's my story too. I mean, it's your story. I mean, this story didn't just happen, but it still happens. I mean, it happens for the successful businessman, you know, who maybe never really felt loved by his dad. And so he works hard at creating this personal empire of sorts as a way of showing his dad, you know what, I can do it. I mean, it happens with a young woman who was abused as a child and now jumps in and out of relationships and in and out of living situations trying to cover up that brokenness. I mean, it it happens with the couple who tried to give their kids everything and in the process they sacrifice the most important thing that is their marriage and, and along the way. And now that the kids are almost gone, you've got two people that are looking at one another thinking, I don't know what we do with this now or where we go from here. The fact is that brokenness didn't just happen once, but it still happens today. And it has a terrible rippling effect in our lives. And there's a story that I remember reading a number of years ago and maybe even shared it here once, but it's in a book entitled Messy Spirituality. And uh, the late Mike Iaconelli tells this story, tells a story of a woman named Margaret. And uh, I want to share some of this story with you. Here's what he writes. He says, for almost 40 years, Margaret had lived with the memory of one soul-scarring day in the one-room schoolhouse she attended. From the first day Margaret came to class, she and Miss Garner, her bitter and harsh teacher, didn't get along. Over the years, the animosity between them only worsened until one fateful day when she was nine years old. Margaret's life was forever altered. After being late for class one more time, Miss Garner went on a rant. Boys and girls, Margaret has been a bad girl, the teacher proclaimed. So we must teach her a lesson. I want each of you to come to the front of the room, take a piece of chalk, and write something bad about Margaret on the blackboard. Can you even imagine? I mean, you know, teachers especially, can you ever imagine doing something like this? Well, maybe this experience, the teacher proclaimed, will motivate Margaret to become a better person. So Margaret stood frozen next to Miss Gardner. One by one, the students began a silent procession to the blackboard. One by one, the students wrote their life-smothering words, slowly extinguishing the light in Margaret's soul. Remember, this is a nine-year-old. As the others wrote, Margaret is stupid, Margaret is selfish, Margaret is fat, Margaret is a dummy. On and on they went until 25 terrible scribblings of Margaret's badness screamed from the blackboard. He writes, after walking home with each caustic word indelibly written on her soul, she crawled into her bed, claiming sickness, and tried to cry the pain away, but the pain never left. And 40 years later, she slumped in the waiting room of her psychologist's office, still cringing in the shadow of those 25 sentences. To her horror, Margaret had slowly become what the students had written. Isn't that how it works? I mean, it just takes one event, doesn't it? I mean, it just takes one comment and and everything can change for you and everything can change for me. And, and sometimes it's almost kind of like, you know, have you ever, have you ever gotten a small chip on your windshield? But, but if you leave it, if you don't mess with it, if you don't get it fixed over time, it could eventually have this spider web like effect and and destroy the entire windshield. I I mean, it's like that with these events and with these words that, that amplify over the years, it's amplified as we start believing the lies that we hear about ourselves. It's, it's amplified with both guilt and shame. I mean, now, now often we like to lump or we lump shame and guilt together. We, we, we lump guilt and shame together, but, but they really can be seen as two different things. I mean, guilt is the thing that we've experienced 
experience for the, for the wrong things that we've done, but shame can be those things that happen to us. And some of you know what it's like. You know the difference between that guilt and shame. And so most of us, for most of us, this shattered life that we experience is a combination of both shame and of guilt. And so what do we do? Well, our reaction is we hide. We try and hide. We hide our brokenness. We try and hide the fact that we're lonely. We try and hide our relationship problems. We try and hide our web browser history. We hide the perfect pictures. You know, we hide behind the perfect pictures that we put on our walls or on our mantle or on our desks. And we hide from God. But, but here's the challenge. Here, here's the challenge in all of that and how we act. You know, hiding from your brokenness will not make it go away. Just because you're not looking in the mirror doesn't mean that this image of yourself, that, that it still isn't shattered. And if left unattended, it doesn't take long before, you know, that shattered feeling or that life that we've lived or those experiences or those lies that we believe, if left unattended, that they have the power to take over and to consume us. You know, I mean, like with the story of Margaret, it doesn't take long before we start believing those lies and what others are saying. And then over time, as we look into the mirror, instead of seeing ourselves as children of God, all we see is the shattered glass. And we see that brokenness. And we see and we believe all those lies. Lies like, you know what, I'm a failure. Or I really am just a dropout. Or I'm a cheater. You know, I, I'm a loser. You know, I, I'm a bad son or a bad daughter. I mean, we'll believe the labels, you know, that I'm, I'm divorced. I'm a bad mother or a bad, bad father. I mean, what, what, what's the lie for you? I mean, when you look in the mirror, I mean, what's that lie that you hear over and over again? You know, what, what's that shattered picture that you see? You know, what are those lies that have the ability to define you? And so we hide. I mean, again, we try and cover it up because we're like, if you knew me, if when you... If you could see what I see when I look in the mirror, well, you wouldn't want anything to do with me because you have no idea what I've done. And and if I even thought about giving you a glimpse behind this mask that I put on each and every day and you saw the brokenness, well, I just don't know what you you would think of me. And so here's the irony with that. Okay, and I, I, want you to, I want you to see this. You know, this fear of being alone and being misunderstood, what's it do? Well, I think it forces us to li- isolate ourselves. I mean, it forces us to hide. I mean, I hide because I don't want to be rejected. I hide because I don't want to be humiliated. I hide, you hide because we don't want to, you know, to feel abandoned. But here's the irony. I mean, we avoid vulnerability and we avoid authenticity with others all the time out of our fear of being driven into isolation. But what do we get on the other side by not doing those things? We end up isolated. We end up isolated with our own fears and our own images and just believing all of those lies that maybe somebody has communicated in the past. I mean, you end up in the one place you're afraid of ultimately ending up in. And that's isolated, so we hide. I'm sure most of us played hide-and-seek as a kid. And uh, maybe you play hide-and-seek with your kids today. You know, growing up, I think I've shared before, I grew up in a small rural town in central Illinois called Curran, Illinois. A very small town, less than 1,000 people. And uh, there were two sides to our town. And there was a highway right through the middle, a somewhat busy highway that divided the north and the south side of town. And, well, we lived on the north side of town. And it was a different time and a different age. And so it was okay for kids to be outside and go wherever they wanted. And you could cross all of these yards. And, you know, you knew everybody. We knew everybody in this town, and so we just went out and played. And we played hide-and-seek a lot, all right? And uh, we played, well, we came up with this 
ultimate sort of hide-and-seek game because we all knew that we couldn't cross the highway, but this north side of town that we lived on probably at least was made up of a couple of blocks, you know, if, if you just want to get that picture in mind. And so we'd get together as kids, and I was one of the youngest kids when we were playing this game, and we just had a couple of rules, all right, a couple of rules. Number one, couldn't cross the highway. I mean, everybody knew that. Uh, the second rule was you couldn't hide in your house or in anyone else's house. And the third rule was that you couldn't hide in the cornfields. All right, you couldn't do that. Well, again, I was a little kid and I wasn't the best at, at choosing hiding places. And so usually me and maybe one other kid, well, we'd hide in the cornfield. That, that's usually where we went. You know, we didn't want to get found. And so we game would start. You'd have about five, ten minutes to find your spot. You know, we'd run out. We'd find a small open patch in the cornfield and have a seat. Well, what happened? What, what are those inevitable things that happen every time you play hide and seek? You take a seat and all of a sudden you got to go to the bathroom, right? I mean, you know, you could have just went, but there's something in the game of hide and seek that just brings that out. And so, you know, you're either dealing with that or before too long, you know, that if I keep hiding without being found, the other kids are going to quit. They're just going to go eat lunch. And and so you're kind of dealing with that. But the third thing is that, well, it's fun to hide for a while, but eventually it's just not that great. I mean, you want to get found. And so, you know, my friend and I, my buddy and I, we'd usually have to make a decision to let, let's go get found. I mean, it's time to come out of the cornfield and to get found out. When you look in the mirror, can I just ask you, what are you hiding from? I mean, what is this for you? I mean, what story... What lie, what event, what failed relationship? I mean, what are those things that you're hiding from? But the more important question that I want to ask you today is this one. What would it look like for you to get found? I mean, what would it look like for you today to say, you know what? I'm going to take a chance that it doesn't have to be like this anymore and that things could change. And there is one who is capable of putting all those pieces back together. You know, there's a great story in John chapter five. If you've got your Bible and you want to go there, I'm going to just look at it very quickly. But right at the beginning of John chapter five, um, Jesus is on the move and he's going from place to place and he's in Jerusalem, sort of the center of it all. And he comes to this public place, uh, a pool, uh, a healing pool. The Bible tells us is called Bethesda. And this place called Bethesda has a reputation for miraculous healings. And the scriptures say that Jesus comes to this man who the Bible chooses one word and says he's an invalid. He's disabled. Uh, we don't know much about him, although we get a very specific piece of information, and that is that he has been in this crippled, invalid, invalid state for 38 years. And, and if you read the story for yourself, you sort of get the idea that he's a regular at the healing place. You know, he goes there every day. I mean, he's always there. And it doesn't take long before you figure out that he's kind of wallowing in self-pity, that it's kind of a, a part of his bit, you know, because, because he's a beggar. And he's been trying to get into this pool where it's believed that when the waters are stirred, that if you can get in the water, well, that you potentially could be miraculously healed. Well, Jesus comes along and he and this man make eye contact. And because he's Jesus, you know, Jesus knows that he's been here for many years now that he's been in this condition for a long time. And so Jesus asks a question, a question at first glance that seems a little silly and even a little insulting. If you ask me, I mean, Jesus looks at this man, he looks him in the face and he asks the question, do you want to get well? That's all that he says. Do you want to get well? I mean, come on. 
I mean, here's this man whose body is broken. He can't walk. He can't take care of himself. His circumstances are overwhelming. He's absolutely, completely dependent on other people to move him around, to take care of his needs. And Jesus has the right mind to ask him, do you want to get well? Now, if I'm with Jesus on this day, I'm probably sort of tiptoeing away as I don't want to be a part of this confrontation. I mean, you'd think the invalid would have said, well, yeah, of course I want to get well. I mean, look at me. I mean, you don't think I want to change. I mean, you think I'm choosing, you know, this sort of condition. And then he just starts making all these excuses, things like, you know, I'd like to get to the healing pool, but every time the waters are stirred, someone beats me or I can't find anyone to help me get there. And so he's got all of these excuses. The point of the story is the point I'm trying to make is this one. I mean, we've got this sick man. He's been an invalid for 38 years. And I just think he is so defined by his condition. I mean, he's gotten so used to it that he really knows no other way. He's so broken that he's not even sure he wants to be fixed. I mean, he's hiding behind all sorts of excuses, even as he looks in the face of Jesus. And do you know what? More often than not, I think we're a lot like this man. And we've become so defined by this that we're just trying to get used to it. Or we'll go about with our lives and we won't look in the mirror for a while. Or we try and hide it. We're all broken. And if left unattended, you know, that brokenness has the ability to negatively shape our lives in the present and forever. But the truth is this one. It doesn't have to be this way. It doesn't have to be like this. I mean, the truth and the power of the message is that Jesus Christ can change everything. I mean, there is a Savior, just like this man saw on this day on the road. There is a Savior. You know, he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is God's Son. God sent him to this earth to die and to change everything. He is the great healer, and his name is Jesus. And he stands before you and me today, and he's got this great question. And the question is this one, do you want to get well? I mean, would you like to meet the one who has the ability to put all of the broken pieces back together and to change everything? You know what? Maybe today's the day. Maybe today is the day for you where you open up your heart and you open up your faith to the possibility that God, that Jesus Christ could put all of those pieces back together. I mean, maybe today is the day that you decide, you know what? Today is the day that I get found. And you start moving away from that brokenness that has so significantly defined you for so long. And so I want to share with you a couple of thoughts on what that could look like for you. Things that you could do even today. Three, three things in your notes pretty quickly. The first one is this. Quit hiding from God. You got to quit hiding from God. I mean, we all like to hide, and so quit hiding from God. And, you know, think about it in terms of your prayers or the conversations that you have with God. You know, most of the time when we pray, and if you're like me, we pray things like this. God, help me with this. You know, God, forgive me of this. You know, God, help me to quit. And those things are okay to pray once in a while, but have you ever really gotten very, very raw with God? I mean, just very, very honest with God. I mean, so, so raw that you were nervous about praying that prayer or having those words come from your mouth. I mean, things like, God, you made me this way. God, why is it so hard? I mean, just full-on gut-level honest conversation where you lay it all out before God. I mean, you go to a quiet place and you just spill your guts with God. You lay it all out on the line. I mean, the good news is the Bible tells us that he listens. That when we cry out to God, he is there and that he listens. And hopefully if you do this, 
whether it's once or twice or it takes 10 times or it becomes a part of your daily life and your walk with God that you're going to hear things and you're going to say things like, you know, God, there is nothing that I could ever do to make up for all of the bad that I have done in my life. And I don't know that I I could do, there is nothing that I could do to ever fix, you know, this condition that I have found myself in. But you're all I have and you're all I I hope for. And you can put all of the pieces back together. You know, don't give up hope. You know, I want you to practice being honest with God about your brokenness with him. To stop hiding and allow yourself to be found by God. I mean, pray something like David did in Psalm 51. I mean, get this. You know, here's where David's coming from. He's guilty of having an affair. He's been a part of a murder. And he's been telling all of these lies. But look how honest he gets with God. Psalm 51 verse 1 says, have mercy on me, O God. Because of your unfailing love. I mean, the Bible says that there is nothing that could ever separate us from the love of God. Or it's like that song we sang just a moment ago. If grace is an ocean, we're all sinking in it. He continues, because of your great compassion. You know what? There are a lot of people on this earth that probably do not understand what you've gone through or where you are today. But there is one who has great compassion that understands it all. And he can blot out the stain of my sins and your sins. And verse 2 says, David says, wash me clean from the guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. It's almost as if David is saying, when I look in the mirror, all I recognize and all I see is the sin and it haunts me day and night. But he's coming to this place. He's writing it again. He's coming clean before God and he's just saying, you know what? I'm not going to try and fix myself anymore. I can't do it, God. You're the only one that can fix it. It is because of your unfailing love and your mercy and your compassion. There's nothing else. And so he's not hiding from God and you and I shouldn't either. Quit hiding from God. The second thing is this, quit hiding from yourself. I mean, be honest with yourself about your condition, you know, about what you see when you look in the mirror. But more importantly, who you are and who you can be in Christ Jesus. You know, so long as we compare ourselves to others, you know, the danger is that we'll always deceive ourselves. I mean, if we keep thinking that we're better than the people that we know, I mean, we're just hiding from our problems. I heard one person say it like this. They say, you know, they say this. I heard one person say that we judge other people on their actions, but we judge ourselves on our intentions. We do. And that's a problem because our intentions don't always produce positive actions, but someone else's poor actions might be the results of their positive intentions. So quit telling yourself, you know what? I'm not that bad. Or at least I'm not the other person. I'm better than most people. You know, quit hiding from your own brokenness and own it. Tell yourself, you know what, I've lived like this too long and it's time to get well. And most importantly, stop believing the lies, you know, that the deceiver is proclaiming in your life. And hear the truth from God's word about who you are. God says you were chosen by me. Where God says, before I made you, I knew you. He says, I created you, that God created you for a purpose. You know, God says, I love you and that I have great plans and intentions for your life. God says, you are my child and that no matter how long you've known Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that you can do all things through Jesus Christ who gives you strength, the one who can strengthen you and sustain you. He is the only one that can redeem you and me and put all of these pieces back together for us. You know, you aren't who you once were if you know Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ changes everything. And you don't need to be defined, you know, by your brokenness anymore. And so when your past comes calling, don't answer. Because it doesn't have anything to say about your future. 
all right, and who you are and who you are in Christ Jesus. So, so quit hiding from God, quit hiding from yourself. And the last thing is this, quit hiding from others. Quit hiding from others. You know, I, I ran across a story just recently about a pastor from a large church, and he had just finished teaching, and he left his mobile phone out on the, uh, the pulpit. And a friend saw that he had left it and went over to pick it up to take it back to him. And just that moment, a text came through. And it was a text, a picture from a young girl in the community. It was an inappropriate photo of both this pastor and this young woman together. And, and as you can imagine, and rightly so, I mean, this pastor was fired immediately and it's made the news. And, you know, as I was thinking about that, I, I mean, we don't know. I don't know how long that he had been in this relationship. And, and what I am about to say, I just want you to know, it doesn't justify what he did one ounce. But the truth is that it's hard to live with integrity. I mean, it's really challenging to live with integrity today, but I will tell you this, it's easier to live with integrity than it is to live and to try and hide your brokenness. James 5.16 says this, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Do you have someone in your life that you can go to? Do you have someone in your life, maybe someone of the same sex that you can go to and you can share an account, accountability with one another and you can talk about some of this and you can talk about some of your shortcomings and some of your mistakes and those challenges and, and those temptations that comes up against you? Because the Bible says that healing comes from this confession. It comes from this accountability, you know, because so many times when we confess, it is so vague or we confess in a, such a way that we're not even really asking for forgiveness. I mean, because we've never confessed to God to begin with. And so do you have someone to go to? And if you're just thinking, no, I don't have that. I'd like that. Or I'd be willing to try that, but I don't have that. I, I want to challenge you to pray for that. I mean, would you just pray? I mean, just make it a part of your prayer. God, would you put someone in my life that I could go to regularly and have this sort of accountability with? Can you put a friend, someone who I can trust in my life? But maybe you're not ready to do that. I mean, maybe you're not ready to take that step yet, but I maybe I'd challenge you with a connection group today. I mean, because you've been here for a while now and, well, maybe you're just kind of sort of hiding in the crowd every week. I mean, we weren't meant to do life alone. I mean, a big part of who we are as a church has to do with becoming a community of getting connected to one another. And so I want to challenge you to, when you walk out of these doors in a few minutes, to maybe stop by our living room area and think about signing up for one of our connection groups. Just give it a try and go and be known because who knows what God may want to do through that relationship or those relationships in your life. But there's another piece to it too, because maybe you're just getting here and the idea of some, doing something like that is, well, that's crazy. I don't know anybody and I'm certainly not willing to take that step yet. Can, can I offer another challenge to you as, as a way of saying, I'm not going to hide anymore? Keep coming. I mean, we want you to know that you're welcome here. And I don't care what this looks like for you. We just want you to know that this is the kind of church we are. I mean, we all have this picture. And we're all putting our faith. We're doing everything that we can to put our faith and our trust in the only one who can put all of these pieces back together. And so you're welcome to be here. You know, quit hiding from God. Quit hiding from yourself. Quit hiding from others. I mean, just it's about owning your brokenness. It's about owning this picture. I mean, admitting you're broken is not about feeling guilty. It's not about beating yourself down, but really it's about acknowledging that I can't fix myself. No matter hard I might try, then I need help. You need help. We all need a rescuer. And we need that same Savior in Jesus Christ. Romans 8.1 says this, Therefore, 
there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How would you just breathe that in for a moment? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This means if you're in Christ Jesus, if he is in you, if you turn your life over to him, there is no reason for guilt. There is no reason for shame. There is no reason to hide. And that, that, that's true in this church. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus is the message of Genesis Church. And if you've been a Christ follower for a long time or you're new to all this, just checking it out. If you're skeptic or maybe, you know, don't believe at all. We just want you to know that you're welcome here because Jesus loves you. And he is the only one that can put all of the pieces back together. Let me finish with this story. Remember Margaret? I mean, the young girl who faced this traumatic experience as a young nine-year-old. Well, author Mike Iaconelli writes of her last appointment with her psychologist 40 years later as she has come to terms with her past and recognized who she was and was smiling, actually smiling, as she prepared to leave the room for the last time. Here's what he writes. The counselor hesitated. Margaret, I know this will be difficult for you, but just to make sure you're ready to move on, I'm going to ask you to do something. I want you to go back to that schoolroom and detail the events of that day just one more time and take your time. To go back through, you know, that nightmare would take every bit of strength she had, he writes. After a long silence, she began the painful description one more time. One by one, she described each of the students vividly as though she had just seen them, stopping periodically to regain her composure. Finally, when she was done and the tears would not stop, could not stop, Margaret, said her counselor, you left one person out. See, he's sitting in the back of the classroom. He's standing up, walking toward your teacher, Miss Garner. She's handing him a piece of chalk and he's taking it, Margaret, he's taking it. Now he's walking over to the blackboard and picking up an eraser. He's erasing every one of the sentences the students wrote. They're gone, Margaret. They're gone. Do you recognize him, Margaret? Yes, his name is Jesus. And now he's writing new sentences on the board. Things like, Margaret is beautiful. Margaret is gentle and kind. Margaret is strong. Margaret has courage. Margaret has love. What do you see when you look in this? Do you see shattered pieces? Or do you see the one, the only one, the man who can change everything, that can put all of the shattered pieces back together? Would you pray that God would give you that faith to see that today, to see him when you look in this mirror? Let's make that our prayer.